see we're on a mission from God. To the podcast. I'm your host, The Q, and today's guest is someone I've been friends with online almost exclusively for, I guess, a decade now. She is one of my, uh, I guess, old, I'm going to call her OG marketing friends, uh, content friends from way back when, and uh, we did meet a couple of times in person, but I feel like she's got so much to offer, and she's such a fascinating person that she had to be on the podcast, so please say hello to Liz Scherer. Hey, Liz. Hey, Q. How's it going? I'm good. I'm good. It's good Good. to see your face. I haven't seen your real-life face, I think, since we met for dinner in Washington, D.C. I know. Isn't that crazy? It's at least 10 years, I think, at least. Yeah, I still remember that was a really good meal. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was. Uh, it was. Was it Turkish? Was it Greek? It was like some kind of. Uh, I was Mediterranean. It was uh, Jose Andres is Zatina, ah. uh, which is still one of my favorite restaurants. If we ever get to go there again, yeah. Uh, so I'm looking forward to kind of um, re rediscovering a lot of old haunts that just seems like a lifetime ago. Seriously, I. Yeah. Uh, I look back on those uh, opportunities to just sit around the table with friends and have a leisurely dinner. And I just do not think we will, uh, I hope we never take that for granted again, once, once, once we're able to do it again. That is so key because I was just thinking the other day how much I have taken for granted most of my life. Um, and a lot of that is, you know, privilege, but it's also just, you know, walking around with blinders, I guess. Mm-hmm. But this has really been, um, uh, I, let's put it this way. After 9-11, I thought that I would never experience an event of that magnitude that had such a cellular impact on me. And mm-hmm. you know, I still get PTSD type stuff. Then the pandemic, and then January 6th, and I'm like, you know, never say never again. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm kind of like, you know, I'm just going to embrace each day and not get too far ahead of myself and not think it's the worst thing that could ever happen to me. Because the reality is I'm actually pretty lucky. Yeah. You know, even in, even in quarantine, although I'm sick of, sick of this, but, you know, I have a nice home and I'm lucky. So, yeah. and a lot of people aren't. You That's know? right. That's right. Yeah, I read last year, I read a book um, by Bruce Lee's daughter. Um, And, you know, he had this whole kind of Taoist philosophy around being like water and just kind of flowing uh, where, you know, not letting things interfere, like, you know, you follow your kind of impulses, you, you don't overthink things, and you just kind of go with the flow, basically. Mm -hmm. And so I made it my sort of goal to do that this year. And, um, you know, because if the last might, well, you're right, the last 10, 20 years have said anything, but the last year has taught us anything. It's that we have no goddamn idea what's going to happen, like no idea. And I just feel like too much good energy is getting thrown away, being upset about things that we have no control over anyway. It's true. And the other thing that's come to mind over the last year for me is nature always wins. Mm -hmm. You know, so as humans, I think we, we, we kind of feel like, you know, we're top of the food chain and we're in control, but the reality is, is nah, you track back, you know, yeah. I mean, New Orleans or other major, you know, the tsunami in Japan, and you just keep tracking back and it's like, nah, it's, you know, nature always wins. And yeah. I think this virus is kind of like brought us to our knees. Yep. you know yep so we need, it's, we need to be humble absolutely really do you know and of course we also I know me personally I'm going to have to remind myself of this two years from now I'll have to harken back to this conversation and say remember when you were going to be humble <laughs> and appreciate every moment remember yeah. that 
<laughs> hopefully we can we can remind each other we can I mean, right i do hope actually i do hope that that's something since we've all gone through this together that we um we listen to one another ongoing and because it is easy when when something is out of sight out of mind to just i don't know act like things never happened or um whatever you know we we live in the moment a lot as a society especially as this, this society because we don't have a lot of we don't have a lot of history in in the first place and so we i mean even the news cycle like nobody knows nobody even thinks about what happened you know one month ago well see that's the thing and so getting to the news cycle since it seems to be the the uh, news of the day we're ready and i put this on facebook the other day it's like we're going through this revisionist history of what happened on the sixth already uh-huh. you know and a friend of mine said to me someone i've known since i was three years old um and is still friends with commented that the average american has like an attention span now of like three days yep <laughs> it was just it was so depressing and you know I live down here now and I know people who were actually at the Capitol that day doing their jobs. And so um, it's the kind of it's the kind of thing that that is going to be with them the rest of their lives. That's mm. that's not something that can easily be erased. Right. You know, so it's just it's it's an incredibly fascinating time to be living in and also just to really just I find, you know, I, the lack of compassion really bothers me. Yeah. And um, I see it daily and I see, I see it more and more on social media. And I think we've all kind of, you know, those of us who are early adopters have kind of watched this decline mm -hmm. in um, decorum and the ability to be polite. And it's just, you know, people are, can be really shitty. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know. It's just, it's a really interesting time. Uh, you know, you have younger, younger kids and um, this is their world. And I, I just feel like we've kind of screwed it up to a certain extent, you know, yeah. and I, I hope that, that, um, that we can, re I've already apologized to my three nephews <laughs> for my, whatever role I've played and where we are today. I have profusely apologized to them several times. Not that it matters, yeah. But I, at least I want them to know that I take whatever responsibility I can take yeah. for contributing. I want them to know that I screwed up somehow. So, um, yeah, it's pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Well, the good thing is uh, my kids, and I think a lot of kids in this generation really do think that adults are a bunch of assholes as it should be. Well, they are. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> I so, agree. Uh, so uh, hopefully, you know, they'll they'll take some some of these lessons into the future and uh, remember them. Yeah, yeah. I, I hope so. Okay, Liz. Before we even start, because we're we're like off and running. I want to do my icebreaker questions. Okay. Okay. So at the beginning of every episode, I do three icebreakers, and they're really their only function is just to get you warmed up, which you clearly do not need, but also to let people who are listening um, just get to know a little bit more about you sort of anecdotally. So okay. the first question is, what is the last thing you watched on TV? So this is interesting that you asked this question because I'm going to be a little bit embarrassed. Good. So I've, I've been binging again this horrible, just the worst written show ever called The Magicians. And it's on Netflix, and I started getting into it when it first came came in. It's a bunch of group of students who go to this magician school that they go through like a wall to get through. I'm, I'm telling you, this, this show has lifted from so many genres. It's now getting to the point where I sit there and I just crack up, which is why I keep watching it. So like last night, we, we had like the zombie apocalypse, and I was just like, what the heck? Oh, it's going on because now they're all grown up. So all I'm going to say is this is a, a big reveal on how probably anti-intellectual I actually am, but no one knows that about me. <laughs> I am a firm believer that you should not be watching. I, I, I mean, I, I believe in entertainment for entertainment's sake. 
100%. Watch crap TV. It's good for you. This is crap. This is as bad as <laughs> crappy as you can get. And it's just really, it's so bad. That's why I just break out laughing. But are the people really hot? Because that's important. Um, well, there's a couple of guys that are okay, but no, they're not really hot. It's not like watching Bridgerton where, you know, I was <laughs> flustered every episode um, <laughs> by the Duke, you know, but yeah. um, no, they're not hot enough. At least not for me. Wow. Some people might think they're hot, but yeah. Nah, not really. All right. Too bad. All right. All right. I'm just looking for some redeeming qualities here. No, there are redeeming qualities. I laugh. And I think laughter is really important right now. Yeah. So. Is it intentionally funny? Answer. You know, it's a good question because I keep asking myself <laughs> that every single time, like one of these lifts from some other genre comes into play with this. I keep thinking, are they just punking us to the whole thing? Like, were the screenwriters just completely stoned the entire time they were writing this, this show? Like, I just can't figure it out. Yeah. So I actually, actually don't favorite... know if it's serious or not. Yeah, that's my favorite kind of like show is when it's so bad it's good, and you're you're literally unsure if it is supposed to be funny or not. I find that right. just incredible. All right, um, that is it, to me that's an art form in and of itself uh okay second question what is the last book that you read okay so here's another embarrassing <laughs> well, yeah. so, we're a year into a pandemic none of this should be embarrassing you are really me. this is going to ruin my career <laughs> i'm telling you um so i'm actually in the middle of a book called the vanishing half and i can look up i don't remember who the author is um I have not, I spent a lot of time not reading last year, which is just atrocious for someone who writes for a living. I mean, I, I read a lot of data prepping for interviews for, for features I was writing, but I was not reading. I, I was finding I was having a really hard time focusing most of last year, but this book I picked up around Christmas and it just drew me in right away. And it's wonderful. And it's about two young, women of color who grew up in a southern town outside New Orleans where the town has gotten progressively whiter and whiter every generation. Uh -huh. And it's about their, um, these women are twins and it's about the different paths that they have taken and the choices that they've made based on the color of their skin. Uh -huh. So it's really, it's very well written. It's fascinating read and I'm halfway through it. Why is that embarrassing? Because I haven't been reading. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. I see. I yeah. see. I see. All right. Because the book sounds so fantastic. The book. The book is fantastic. Yeah. Wow. The Vanishing Half. Yeah. No, I go through periods. I, be, I go through big slumps where I don't read, and then I just like read constantly. And I also am a believer that audiobooks are legitimate reading, and I have discovered that, and and that's been a huge boon for me because then I can also do things like cooking and laundry and stuff like that while I'm reading um and and exercise like I walk miles and then and listen to books um but my reading is also not like my reading is embarrassing because it's kind of cheesy <laughs> like I I don't do like well, you like a lot of like sci-fi fantasy type stuff right I do I do I also really like like you know self-help stuff and you know I don't uh, think that's cheesy I have yeah. plenty of that stuff you know I'm a, I'm very I used for a long time I was a voracious reader um which is why it's embarrassing to, to not be reading that much but I go all through all different types of uh genres I don't care for nonfiction very much right. because I read nonfiction in my work so much but um no, you know, it depends on what I'm in the mood for. I, I also like a really good beach read, you know, that's mm -hmm. just crappy. I love mysteries. Um, you know, it's funny, everybody, I, my friends have been trying to get me to write a book for decades. And I may be the only writer in history who, who has absolutely no interest in writing a book. I don't want to write a business book. I did write a book years and years ago in the 80s about journey to parenthood, it was called. And it was about you know, going through, it was a nonfiction book. Uh, it was written for um, a nonfiction or nonfiction, nonprofit 
group called Maternal Health something or other that were in New York City, which is where I was living at the time. Um, it's funny because I wrote this book and I never had kids. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know, maybe it, maybe it was like, that was it for me. <laughs> you, you've contributed, yes, you've made your contribution. I contributed, yes, I contributed in a different way. Uh -huh. I gave a lot of advice without having any firsthand experience, but you know what? I'm really good at that. <laughs> <laughs> the best writers are. <laughs> Amazing. All right. All right. And then the third question I have for you, Liz, Cher, is what did you have for breakfast today? I don't eat breakfast because I'm an intermittent faster. Oh, I see. How's that work? When did you start doing that? Oh, I'm so sick of it. <laughs> really? You hate yeah, it? Yeah, I just... It just drives me nuts. I would, like even today, especially this morning, I really felt like breakfast. I mean, I rarely break it. Um, I started when everybody else was starting. So mm -hmm. I was doing it all of last year. I initially lost weight and then, you know, at night, sometimes I'd cheat. So at this point, it's all bets are off and I'm still doing it. So I had co black coffee. That was mm -hmm. my breakfast. All right. Okay. Yeah. I, so I, not I, very interesting. No, that's, perfectly fine. I have, so my own breakfast journey is that I hated breakfast for most of my life. And I still only start out with black coffee and uh, not because I'm fasting, but that's just what I want first thing in the morning. But ever since I started working from home last March, I've been here with my family, right? And they all like having breakfast. And so I've been making breakfast every day. And I figured, well, if I'm making them breakfast, I might as well eat it myself so now I'm a breakfast eater and so what you have today so today I just had eggs and toast okay. and and some berries um which my husband made for me because I'm not feeling well but I you know like I have just discovered the wonderful world of breakfast and and not just like eating but like sitting down and eating breakfast at the table like it's yeah weird it's a totally, I don't even know if once the virus thing is under control and we all go back to routine, whatever that is, I don't know if I'll keep it up, but for now, I'm kind of enjoying this. It feels luxurious. I love brunch. Mm. That's always been one of my favorite, like, you know, I'm not a big egg person, but you know, I just like, I like hanging out with friends and eating brunch and having cocktails and I don't just having like a lazy uh, weekend afternoon, but um, yeah, breakfast, I gave up breakfast and I gave up uh, any kind of milk in my coffee. Yeah. And at first I was like, I've been having half and half in my coffee for decades and I didn't know if I could even do it. That was the biggest intimidating thing about oh. this intermittent fasting was I didn't know if I could do the black coffee thing. Wow. And now I'm not sure I could have cream in my coffee again. Yeah. So yeah. it's yep. weird how that changes. Yeah. No, I feel the same way. Cause I, for years I had um, milk in my coffee and then just started going, I forget why I started going without it, but I, now I just love black coffee. Like that's all I want. Well, if you have really good beans and I yeah. do invest in beans and definitely, I mean, I, I can't drink the rock gut stuff. Like I, I hate Starbucks. I think Starbucks yeah, yeah. has like the worst coffee in the world next to McDonald's, you know? Right. Dunkin' Donuts actually is pretty good coffee. Yeah. I don't know how it's possible, but they do. I'll, I'll drink that. But, um, you know, actually if I'm desperate enough, I'll drink the crap, but um, I do make a point to order beans. Actually, you know, it's funny. It's amazing how many things I, I've become such a, like a home consumer, like everybody else now. So everything gets ordered online and mm -hmm. it's, it's just very odd. Do you have um, any, do you have a, any favorite coffee brands that I should know about? I've been ordering from, this is going to be such a brand plug, this entire conversation. Um, I've been ordering from a site called Coffee Bean Direct and they um, roast their own beans. Mm -hmm. And the minimum amount you can order is like two and a half pounds at a time, unless mm -hmm. it's one of their specialty coffees. I love their coffee. So I've been ordering the Ethiopian Yurgut Chepi. I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. I like their Brazilian Santos. And I like the Tanzania 
pea bear, berry, I think it is. Mm -hmm. A lot of the beans I like are from Africa or from like South America. And it's funny because I remember going to South Africa with my ex and we had signed up for a safari at Kruger and we had hired a private guide. And so when they get like they sent us this whole questionnaire before we got there you know what do you eat what do you eat in the morning you know like your questions uh-huh. uh, <laughs> and they actually had like talk about you know spoiled they had like a little uh traveling french press for me wow. but if you go to africa Africans don't drink coffee they just export it all so it, it's really interesting like you, it's not it's it was like this weird realization of, um, again, how much we basically have raped that continent, you know, and that everything is sent out as opposed mm-hmm. to enjoying it themselves. Mm-hmm. So it was also very, aside from the fact it was it was interesting that I was able to do that, it also was really kind of eye-opening, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Huh. All right. So those are my favorite brands. All right. Well, I, as soon as we get off this call, I'm going to go check that out. Cause, cool. Um, we're always on the look. My sister-in-law just ordered from them too. See, I should become their brand ambassador. Do you have a do you have a code? Do you need me to use I a code? I don't have okay. a code, but damn it, I should have one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, excellent job breaking the ice, Liz. Oh, thank so, you. Thank now, you for the question. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the work that you do because you are you are a writer, but you have mm-hmm. a focus on um, health, right? Or I do health yeah. topics. Um, what are, is there a specific area within uh, that umbrella or under that umbrella that you consider your area of expertise? Or are you pretty flexible when you write about health topics? I'm very flexible. I can pretty much get up to speed on every anything and everything I've written in just about every what I call disease silo uh-huh. uh, that's out there. Um, early on in my career, when I le- I was originally in public relations the first eight years of my um, working life, hated it. And when I left that job and went on to become a full-time medical writer. So that's where I got a lot of my chops. And back then I was writing a lot about cancer pain. I just mm-hmm. kind of fell into this. Um, was it but, for, uh, was it for a, a hospital? Like who were you writing? No, no, I was freelancing wow. and I was doing continuing medical education, um, wow. uh, interactive type quizzes for, you know, they read something and then they have to, in order to get their academic points and keep their medical license, they got to take these, these uh, peer reviewed pieces or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, So, but now I have three things that I'm really, uh, I would say are more of my expertise. So the first one is obviously women's health. And that has always been an incredibly strong interest of mine. Um, I spent even when I was in college, it was an area that I was uh, really fascinated with. And as you know, I spent um, six and a half years writing about menopause and, and perimenopause. Again, just like the pregnancy thing, when I was writing about it, I wasn't, I was not in the middle of menopause. And funny enough, I learned when I did get into menopause that not everything I wrote was completely correct. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um <clears throat> But um, so women's health is one. I've been honing my chops in cannabis and cannabinoids and the endocannabinoid system Ooh. for really decades. And it, you know, cannabis is like the new black, like everybody wants to write about it. But I started getting interested in medical marijuana back in the 90s. And I, few people know this, but I had interest uh, the, um, editor of Mother Jones back then, who is now the editor-in-chief, in doing a piece on medical marijuana, because no one was really writing about it. And mm-hmm. so I spent a year interviewing patients um, who were using um, using it as medicine, and really fascinating stories like patients with MS getting out of wheelchairs for the first time. It, wow. it was really impactful. And then I spoke with um, I started networking through a series of doctors and I started in San Francisco and I just worked through networks and I was actually talking to doctors who are both on both sides of the argument, pros and cons. And I was never able to 
come up with an angle that satisfied the editor, even though I had initially intrigued her with an overall umbrella. So I kind of uh, went in, like dabbled in and out of that for a while. And then I returned to it a couple of years ago. So I have since, I've written a couple pieces for Medscape. I actually have one, a feature that that's still in editing right now that's coming out. Um, I have written on that for Everyday Health. Um, and I've also reported on it for a European website uh, that I have a daily gig, which happens to be on infectious diseases. Mm. But when we were US-based, we, I was part of the US-based team of this uh, group. I was also part of, I wasn't just writing about infectious diseases, I was also writing about cannabis. So those are the three areas that I'm um, really, you know, infectious diseases I've always liked. I mean, it, it was, uh, I was fortunate to have that background when COVID hit. Mm -hmm. So I had, you know, there wasn't a lot of work last year, but I was certainly was able to do the work that, uh, that was out there. Mm -hmm. You know, and um, I also was able through that knowledge to help a lot of my friends and family because my knowledge base just expanded so quickly because it was such a fast moving story. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, but so those are the three areas I like the most, but I can pretty much, you know, I, I'm writing right now about um, COVID testing or yeah. an antigen test. So I'm doing that work. Um, I spent this morning writing a piece for uh, rheumatoid arthritis. So I can pretty much, you know, if you if I get a topic, I know how to uh, do a quick and dirty dive if it's something I haven't done. Mm -hmm. I will tell you the one area I do not like doing is heart disease. And I can't tell you why, I've always had a really hard time with it. I just, it's just not something that, maybe because I just don't, I don't like reading about it, I mm -hmm. guess, but. Um, you know, usually when clients say to me, what do you like to write about? Or won't, what won't you write about? And I always bring up the fact that I do not like heart disease because I just don't want those assignments, you know? What, um, so let me start with this question, which is what is it about you? Because <laughs> this isn't like a, from what I can tell, you didn't study any anything medical but you were really drawn no I, I mean I don't I don't I'm mean a that. fraud I am such no, a fraud no that's that's not what I mean at all I mean I feel like some of the one of the threads that I'm finding in these different conversations I'm having with people is how where they end up is very different from where they started out mm -hmm. and as you go along through your career you find these opportunities and they just speak to you and so I, I'm just curious to know, for somebody who started out with like communications and doing PR, what was it about you that made this such an appealing career move? To because I and I say that as somebody who I cannot think of a job that I would be less interested in doing than writing. I mean, I read a lot of health stuff, but I don't think I have the the mental tenacity to like get into these topics and parse them out and really try to make them into something usable for other people to read? So I actually have been writing since I was a kid. Mm -hmm. um, I used to write poetry when I was very young. I was published um, in the library newsletter, My Haiku at the age of seven. Nice, excellent. <laughs> it was my first publication. It was about a rose. I cannot recall it enough to uh, provide the poem to you. Um, then in, or in high school, I started to kind of do this transition more into like nonfiction type interest in writing um, as opposed to creative writing. Even though I took, even in my early 20s, I was taking a lot of writing workshops. Writing fiction is really difficult. And I don't, I don't think most people understand how difficult it is to find the voice of your characters. Mm -hmm. So you can have a really good idea for a story, but if you can't get yourself into those characters, I mean, I don't think, I think only hand, very few people do it really well. So I knew I was gonna do something with writing, you know, and when I was in college, I, I uh, actually um, majored in political science because I wanted to be an attorney and I lost that desire really quickly. 
by the way. But one of the things that that field of, and I also did comparative literature for a minor, but one of the things that uh, taking these political science classes taught me was how to write analytically. Mm. And it was a skill that at the time, of course, I had no idea I was picking up, but it was a really important skill to learn. And so when I went into public relations, and by the way, I was originally, I had moved back to the East Coast after college. I went to school in the Midwest. Um, I was living at home. I was trying to get a job in New York City or Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. The jobs in New York uh, were all more general. The, the jobs I was going for in D.C. were in government relations because mm -hmm. I figured it was a way to like take the political science background. Anyway, I spent a year trying to get a job and it was couldn't get hired, you know, so I had odd jobs throughout the year. Um, finally got a little job in this tiny little shop that went uh, belly up like two years later. It was awful. I was doing PR for Cronenborg beer right around the time that um, John Cleese had, was doing commercials for them. Oh, I see. And my father knew someone who's, my father was a stockbroker and um, had a client whose daughter was running a PR department that was medical. And so that's how I got into it to, to begin with. Wow. And so I, I look at it as I kind of entered it through the back door. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, it wasn't a direct, like, this is what I want to do. I just kind of fell into it. And I actually, and this was, this is funny because this is where this whole women's health piece comes in. I helped bring Gyna Locherman over the counter. Yeah. That was my account. And at the time that that uh, yeast infection drug, which never really took off because Monistat, we beat Monistat, but uh, Monistat had most of the market share. Um, so that's where I started getting involved with women's health was through this, this uh, RX to OTC switch. And I started honing my chops, just learning how to read data and how to translate it for audiences. So I have followed this weird trajectory throughout my career. I've done a lot of different things, but I keep coming back to the same thing. So everything mm -hmm. has been this foundational writing. What, whatever it is, it, it, you know, I've done strategy. I'm very good at it. Frankly, I'm still doing it for a nonprofit as part of my work. Um, and that work that I'm doing is in uh, racial justice uh, as it uh, uh, as it applies to black and brown women mm -hmm. specifically. Mm -hmm. um, and but the rest of, of what I'm doing right now, 95, 96% of my work is really just journalism based and reporting mm -hmm. now. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, it's interesting about uh, everybody has become an expert on COVID because everybody's interested because right. it's affecting everybody, right? Right. But there was, a, there's a, one of the things that happened last year was newsrooms were so understaffed with regard to their health reporters right. that they were taking non-health reporters and throwing them into that role. And so what was going on was you were seeing a lot of bad interpretation of data. Uh. And so one of the... Um, one of the professional organizations I'm a member of is the Association of Healthcare Journalists. And they actually started to offer classes for non-healthcare journalists, kind of get up to speed on like, what do you need to do to, to actually report on this accurately, right? Yeah. So uh, there was some outreach going on, but it was also, it was a really interesting to kind of sit back and watch that happening because, you know, for me, most of my work was towards professional audiences. And I happened this, um, the US group of this, uh, of this overall company was shut down uh, after WebMD bought the company. I see. And a very small group of us, probably about a third of us were punted over to Europe where it had been a very ro robust operation. So the people I report to are actually in Paris for this job. Mm -hmm. And 
So the work is being translated to like a zillion countries, which is kind of um, exciting. And it's for a clinical audience. So I kind of, I have felt really good about it. Um, for most of the time I've been reporting on COVID because I'm really helping them treat their patients, right. you know? But when I say I'm a fraud, what I'm saying to you is that I don't have a medical degree. I don't even have a science degree. I just, you know, I just picked it up and learned how to read the data and turn it around and make it into chunks that people can understand right. and get something out of it, right. you know? But what I really like to do is interview people. Like I love interviewing people for my features and for the pieces I write because it's fun, you know? And it's a real skill that, by the way, when I first started doing it, I was really crappy at. And uh -huh. I have a really interesting story. I don't know if you remember when an the whole anthrax thing was going down. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. So I was developing, there was a, a magazine called Book Magazine, which was all about reading and, you know, books and whatever. And I had been assigned, they had a um, section in the magazine where you talk to famous people or famous authors to find out what's on their book, like what's on their night table, what books are on their night table, yeah. what are they reading? You know, and so I did, um, I had to talk to Judith Miller. I don't know if you remember who she was. Mm -mm. She was a um, uh, uh, writer at the New York Times and she wrote, very famous. And she, she ended up being embroiled in a scandal uh, that had something to do with the government. I don't, I don't remember the details anymore. And she, she lost her job. And so, um, but she also, before that happened, she wrote a book called Germs about germ warfare. Oh. So I was assigned to interview her for Book Magazine to find out what books were on her night table. And I had read that she had had an affair with Gaddafi. Okay. <laughs> so I remember this because I, boy, did I almost fuck this interview up. So I, and I'm probably not supposed to swear on your podcast, but, um, but by the way, the fact that this is probably the first swear word I've said in 45 minutes is pretty, is, it, is a record. It's a I record. was expecting more. Yeah. <laughs> so sorry to disappoint. So anyway, in the middle of this interview, I bring up this affair. And boy, did I, I did what some people call breaking myself into jail. And she got really incensed. And there was like this moment that felt like an hour where I thought, holy shit, how do I dig myself out of this? Like, how do I get out of this and get us back in track? And she was pissed. Really? And I don't remember how I did it, but I managed to, I managed to like charm her back to the interview. And that was like my first introduction to how not to conduct an interview. <laughs> so, um, I, I'm happy to say I've gotten much better at it and I know what topics to avoid. Um, that was not a good topic to bring up in the middle of it. So. Uh, uh, that is the, well, I mean, that's, I guess, I guess it's a learning process. <laughs> it was a learning process and I'm pretty sure, and I need to look it up, but I am pretty sure she did have an affair with Gaddafi. Wow. So I'm just saying that I don't think I was wrong. <laughs> Amazing. Um, Okay. I, I completely agree with you. Like this podcast is the first kind of foray that I've had into doing um, interviews and, and long form interviews. It's quite challenging. And I guess I didn't really, it's one of those things where you see interviews all the time, or you listen to interviews all the time, and you don't realize what all goes into it and how much of a skill it is. And and that the variable, I mean, the variable each time is the guest and a good interviewer mm -hmm. has this ability to be flexible and to meet people wherever they are. And so it's been a really interesting learning process for me as well. It is, um, it's just an, an aspect of communications that I had never put much time into. And I'm, I'm really glad that I did because it's quite fruitful and it's very joyful to have these kinds of exchanges. I, I feel like you get things out of people in an interview format that you can't get with, with just the regular cold exchange of information. 
That is so true. And I, I think one of the key things you just said is kind of meeting people where they are. <clears throat> I think the, the uh, one skill set that is an essential skill set is uh, to be able to um, have like this format for a set of questions that you, the story you're trying to write, but you also have to be able to, and agile enough to pivot from that and to follow whatever line or thread that the person you're speaking to brings you down, but still bring it back to where you need it to be. So it's a dance. I like having conversations with people, you know, so I, it, it's something that I've, I've gotten pretty good at. Sometimes it's hard because some of the topics, particularly people don't realize how complex the cannabis industry is and how multifaceted it is. Like it's one of the few industries where you just, there's a social aspect to it and there is a political aspect to it and there's a racial justice aspect to it. Mm -hmm. And there's agriculture and there's commercialization and like all of these different factors come into play. And then you've got this scientific story behind it, which is the endocannabinoid system, which every single living organism has except for two. Hmm. And one of them is a, the insects and the other one is protozoa. And every other animal, every other living thing has this system in them. So it's really complex. Like it's way above my pay grade, you know? <laughs> so I've spent a lot of time trying to learn the science without having a science background. Mm -hmm. And so when you get on the phone with these really, really, with these researchers who are totally entrenched, like I did one on a story for Everyday Health, which is the consumer website on uh, uh, cannabinoids and anxiety. Well, okay, now we're talking about brain stuff. We're talking about, you know, neurology, and then it's getting really complicated, you know, and I'm sitting there trying to prep for this interview thinking, I'm just going to fall on my face, you know, but you, you, you figure out how to kind of just catch yourself if you start slipping. And again, for me personally, I think that being so mortified during that Judith Miller interview years ago has yeah. never, it never left me. Like, that's like my, my PTSD when it comes to interviewing, like I will never do that again. So yeah. I actually over-prepare for interviews. Yeah. You know, and but it, it's a skill. But what you were saying earlier, I think is a I mean, I think that this is a unique role. I and I don't know exactly what we would call this or or you know, like in traditional media or in the traditional information landscape. But because of the way that everything has been flattened, you know, democratized with digital media, it's really important that there's somebody in this role of curation and interpretation right because you have these folks like you said who are very high-end they're they're researchers they're academics they're people that are very intense thinkers but that doesn't necessarily translate to popular culture and to the average reader or the person that's just looking for you know good basic information and so there has to be somebody that can help bring that these really important ideas and topics to the public and and to do it in with you know what you were saying about you know being part of the uh, medical journalist society or, or whatever group you're part of to do it in a way that is um, ethical and rigorous so that you're because you know you can't believe everything you see on the internet so th there's this kind of pipeline that has to be created that's trustworthy that's ethical that's a, you know that you can build relationships with the audience and they know that you're sourcing information from a really valid place and that the way that you're interpreting it to them is it's clean it's good I mean they're not you're not just editorializing it you're not just pulling it out of your ass you're actually basing this content on something more than you know an opinion and a, and a Wikipedia entry. But I think it's gotten really difficult because, you know, I'm old enough to know when there wasn't a 24 hour news cycle, right? you know, and so people had time to really do the work and to 
dive into a story and the details and then pieces were edited properly. And mm. now because of the, how, you know, I think content has ruined everything, frankly. And I, I'm sure you've seen my rants on various social media platforms about this, uh, but it really kind of, I think it robbed uh, a lot of um, the complexity and context from what would be what it would be an important piece, but needed a certain amount of detail in it in order to be understandable. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the media has done, and I, I hate to, kind of, the media is not a monolith, but the media has done a really shitty job the last couple of years, you know, mm -hmm. the national media, um, particularly uh, broadcast in, you know, covering what was going on in our country. And I, I think, you know, and I think, I don't want to point fingers, but I also think that because we've seen this transition from um, integrity and ethics to a business model, yeah. what happens when that happens is you're no longer you're no longer necessarily adhering to the framework, the ethical framework that you might be trained under. So then you have to, you know, you're meeting a lot of masters, and it becomes very very difficult, you know, and. I will tell you, even like one of the things that happened that I that I've witnessed with some of the sites that are or some of the uh, publications that I work with, like all I have a lot of articles that I've written that I'm still waiting to be published, mm -hmm. and they just keep getting pushed aside because of business priorities, right? So I literally I could name four or five articles that are still waiting that are on somebody's desk that I've written, that I took the time to interview people, you know, and they're still haven't been published, you know? Right. So it's it's a really, um, I don't know where this field is going, quite frankly. I think writing is essential for communication. I, I think it's becoming a lost art. I'm hoping, part of me hopes it will come back. Um, you know, I, I think that everything should evolve, but I also think there's just a basic framework you shouldn't lose. And so to your point where you were talking about how much work goes into interviewing someone and, and how it becomes so essential to communication, I think basic writing skills, I think about them the same way. Mm -hmm. You know, that I think in order to be able to, to communicate with one another and have a relationship, you can't just you can't just rely on a, on a video or emojis. You know, I just think the written world word is really important. And some of it has to do with allowing people to go into their heads and not be bombarded by external stimulus 24 right. seven. Right. right. Exactly. So, you know, it's, it's like I said, it's a fascinating time. You know, my, my parents are still alive and my dad is 94 and, um, he's lived through a lot of stuff, like a lot of, you know, when I step back and think about it, like he had a real ice box. You know, when I was growing up, we called the refrigerator an ice box. It wasn't an ice box. It was more like what you think of fridges now with all, all without all the bells and whistles, right? Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. he had like an ice box and there was an ice man that <laughs> came and delivered the ice to keep the food cold, you know? And then he remembers the first TV and, you know, and then, you know, much to his credit, he actually, he has an iPhone and he uses a computer. And so, you know, he's learned all that stuff and he's evolved. But I also think that in our lifetime, we've seen a lot of changes because, you know, I'm old as dirt, but my first job, I used a typewriter and we had one person who was on like this big unit. I don't even remember what it was called, who would take like all the stuff we were typing up or like reformatted, you know, so there was one person who was doing the so-called computer stuff, right? But we were all working on typewriters, which was actually really funny, Amanda. So I know we're running out of time, but I, here's another story for you. So when I left public relations and I got my first job as a medical writer, and I had just bought this uh, laptop when when these computers were actually laptops, uh -huh. by the way, they were that size <laughs> and heavy as hell. 
I had just bought this and it was a Toshiba, but it was a DOS based uh, laptop. So you had to learn like yeah. code stuff. And by the way, if you ever put it in front of me today, I would not be able to do it. Right, just an right. FYI. Uh -huh. So, um, so I, I had to learn not just how all the DOS strokes, but I also had to learn how to type <laughs> well in order to get this article done. So the only reason I am a good typist today is because my ass was to the wall and I had to get this article done for in order to make money. So that's why I learned to type because I was always a horrible typist. In fact, in high school, we used to have to take, or junior high, we had to take typing and I think I failed the class. So, you know, wow. it is, it's just really funny. Yeah. I have, I, I, I haven't thought about this stuff in years. Yeah, so. no, I, I, I'm the same way. We're, you're not that much older than me. And I took, you know, typing in junior high and I still struggle with double spacing after every period. And, you know, mm. I mean, like we- No, no. <laughs> I can't help it. It's, it's ingrained in you. You just no, do so many drills. No. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I went my entire first half of my life to adulthood without, without, you know, being on the internet, having a cell phone, any of that stuff. And so I feel like part of where we are right now as a society is we've, we've adopted all of this stuff so quickly. And now it feels like we've had this stuff forever and we haven't, right? We haven't mm -hmm. had, somebody tweeted out the other day, um, about how they remember how the uh, TV stations would just sign off every night, right? Mm -hmm. I'd just be like, all right, that's it. That's enough. Go to sleep, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, put up their color bars and see you in the morning. Yeah, not anymore. No, right, you, it's right. just like 24-7. Yes. And, but all of this happened really, like, we think we feel like we're so immersed in it. We feel like it's been this way forever. But, but we, we just, the rapid adoption is where I think we got ourselves in trouble. And and I am not a person that thinks, I mean, I am I, I love technology. I love progress, but I also feel like anything that's done without conscious choice is ceding your control to somebody else mm -hmm. and your choices. And our job, before we get even further down the road, like, I, I feel like the minutes are ticking by for us to actually kind of, you know, take some stock here and be like, is this how we want the world to be going forward? Is this how we want to operate going forward? Or do we want to place some controls on ourselves? And I'm not one of these people that feels like I want other people telling me what to do. I think that we can, I think that we need to have cultural solutions. I think that we need to decide as a society what is acceptable. What is it that we, how do we want to engage with one another in the public space? And how do we want to carry out, carry out our deliberative democracy? And we need to do it, you know, as a, as a decision. We, we don't, I don't want somebody else making that, those decisions for me. I don't necessarily want Mark Zuckerberg to tell me what I can and can't do. But I think that the people, all of us need to have these decisions and have real conversations about it. And I, I, I don't know. I don't even know. I mean, this is the this is the thing, Liz. Like, you know, you talk about the retro retro view. I think that I think that at a certain point after Pandora's box is open, it's just that's it. We're done. Like the the revolution has come and gone, and now our best bet is just to be uh, defend. You know, to take defensive measures. I really, I I don't. I hope that's not true. I feel every day. Like it's more and more true, but I think that there are still things that we can do individually and collectively to put some self-imposed limits on the way that technology has been chosen for, the technologies that we use are chosen for us. I agree with you, but I also, you know, my, I think it's about self-regulation like you were just talking about. I, I think it's less of a external, I don't think we're gonna be able to, to democratize a decision mm -hmm. over this as a culture. I think it has to be driven internally and with ourselves. 
and limit how much we're consuming. You know, and, and I certainly do, you know, um, and I think if the pandemic, one of the things the pandemic has shown me, and this is where I, I take both sides of it is, this is the first time I've ever seen scientists from all over the world working so closely together to solve a problem yeah, yeah. and being able to harness like AI in order to do that and sharing data. And all of a sudden, all these paywalls came down for medical journals that you would, they were hundreds of dollars to be able to, you know, I always had a press pass, but in order for Joe Public to like look at any of this stuff, mm -hmm. it was all behind a paywall. So, you know, that's been the good, I, I think there's been a lot of good that has come out of it, but I think where I, you know, it, it's almost what we were talking about earlier about uh, losing decorum. I think we've lost our humanity. You know, uh, it's like the rage in the machines. Now, you know, I have an older brother who's terrified of robots and I, I tease him about it all the time, but frankly, we all should be, you know, because they're dancing now and like acting like dogs and it's just, you know, they can be servants and, you know, I don't particularly want a robot cat, okay, that doesn't have a tail or a face. I don't know if you've seen those. No. <laughs> but, okay, they Wait, don't have the tails or are face. coming for our cats? Fuck that. Yes, they're just like <laughs> one big fuzzy lump that looks like a meatloaf oh, shit. that can purr and I'm like no you know I just <laughs> because that sounds so disturbing it's so screwed up I mean like what is the appeal of cats the fact that there are rulers right <laughs> they're the only animal in the kingdom that actually rules humans uh -huh. think about it because you know I know you have cats too right uh-huh uh -huh. yeah so cats the felines rule even when they're in a home with dogs the felines are in charge. Okay. So someone made a comment about the first dogs being in the White House. And I'm like, when CODIS, they're calling it CODIS, which is a terrible, terrible acronym because I keep thinking colitis, uh, colitis. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's just tell you where my brain is going. And I just mispronounced it. But when that cat gets into that White House, who do you think is going to be in charge? Yeah. Right. So I know that I'm not in charge of my life in my little home. My two cats are. So, you know, they rule my life. And yeah. I I just acquiesce. I don't, you know, so I bitch about it sometimes to them, but I still do it. Right. So, you know, I don't want a robot cat ruling my life. Um, it, it just doesn't make sense to me. There's something really perverse about it. <laughs> so. Wow. I'm sorry. I digress. I just pulled this off of this really serious topic. No, um, that that's actually that's actually great. Like that that's the whole point of these conversations. Is there there's no rules, and um, and I I also you know as much as I enjoy showcasing people's expertise, I always really like to showcase people's personalities too because uh, that's what makes people so delightful to me. Well, I think that you are honestly one of the most delightful people that I've met. Uh, in the internet world. That's um, a claim to fame. No, well, I like the people you surround yourself with because I think the people that you surround, one surrounds themselves with, speak very loudly about who they are. And I notice who people surround themselves with and you surround yourself with really good people. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm grateful to be one of those people. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm grateful <laughs> I just that you decided are. I'm one of them. Oh, yeah, thank no. you. I, I consider my community my superpower. I am, and again, that's why I I decided to do this podcast is that I didn't feel really good about keeping them all to myself. <laughs> like I just I'm so blessed with the people in my world online and off, and um, and you are definitely one of those people, and have consistently been one of those people, and okay. are a testament to how valuable online relationships are and can be. Right. So it's kind of full circle. But um, no, when you said you were doing these, uh, I don't normally volunteer for any of this stuff, but I was like, I want to go, I want to do that. Yeah. So when I saw your solicitation, I was like, and then when I saw you done it with Amy, I was like, well, hell, now I have to do it. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm <you> jealous. Know, <laughs> we, uh, yeah, it's, uh, uh, it's really just a, an excuse for me to have 
conversations with people. I think it's great because I haven't spoken to you in person in years. It's all been, you know, online. Okay. Yeah. Yes. And you know what? I, I should have said this earlier, but I do want to thank you for the work that you're doing to help bring oh, th- this kind of information to the public. I have to say, um, you know, being in a pandemic is super scary. It's unprecedented for most of us in this country. And we are in such a precarious time because it's, it is hard to know who to trust and there's mm-hmm. so much information coming at us. And so just knowing that there are people out there producing good information and, uh, and again, having rigor in the way that it's produced, it, it means a lot. And it's a, it is a public service as far as I'm concerned. So thank you for that. I appreciate that. Thank you. And don't come back until you've redeemed yourselves.